This is a case from the Shobogenzo, a collection of uh, 300 koans. Zhaozhu's cup of tea. Main case. Zhaozhu asked a newly arrived monk, Have you been here before? The monk said, Yes, I have been here. Zhaozhu said, Have a cup of tea. Later, he asked another monk, Have you been here before? The monk said, No, I have not been here. Zhaozhu said, Have a cup of tea. The monastery director then asked Zhaozhu, Aside from the one who has been here, why did you say have a cup of tea to the one who has not been here before? Zhaozhu said, Director. The director responded, Yes. Zhaozhu said, Have a cup of tea. Commentary. In the real truth, there is no other thing that is present. In worldly truth, the 10,000 things are always present. We should clearly understand that real truth and worldly truth are non-dual, and that this, in and of itself, is the highest meaning of the holy truth. The monastery director was lost in the differences between the two monks. So Zhaozhu moved in all directions at once to help him see. If you go to the words to understand this, you will miss it. If, however, you see into it directly, it will be like the bottom falling out of a bucket. Nothing remains. How do you see into it directly? Have a cup of tea. Capping verse. In the ordinary, nothing is sacred. In sacredness, nothing is ordinary. <clears throat> so what is it about our practice, about Zazen practice? that makes it so, makes our life, or has a potential to transform our lives. What's so special about it? And why is it that we fluctuate between embracing it with open arms and rejecting it, pushing it away as if it's a, it's a burden or a chore? Practice itself is very simple. Right? It's not, the pushing or pulling does not come from the practice itself. When we look at Zazen, all we are asked to do is to sit down, fold our legs, direct our attention inwardly, not move for a little while, Observe the ebb and flow of thoughts, feelings, sensations. That by itself is not complicated. Everyone can do that. A child can do that. Not that they do, but they can't do that. The child can do that. It's as easy as that. And a person, 80-year-old, can have major complications with it. None of it comes from the practice itself. No, so when we are sitting, when we are doing what we need to do in our zazen, this simplicity, right, in that we don't give our monkey minds contents to chew on, more contents to chew on. So gradually, it actually becomes subdued. As the process happens, the dust created by the constantly churning mind begins to settle. And little by little, we're able to get in touch with 
a selfless reality. We're there and we're not there. We have a name and we are nameless. We have a body, but the body is transparent at the same time. It's not the practice of avoiding having a body or pretending we don't. It's not a practice of pretending we don't feel sadness, happiness, no lament. Includes it all. And in that, while it is so simple, the churning mind does not give up so easily, as we know, we all know it. So a simple practice becomes profoundly challenging to maintain. The restless energy stirs us away from the cushion, away from practice, away from upholding the vows, away from reading, maybe away from listening to talks, for, for coming down to Dokusan. And it keeps resurfacing while we try to maintain a steady zazen and single-minded concentration. Sometimes it feels like a trickling faucet. It's annoying, but it's bearable. And at other times, it feels like a raging river. Unbearable. We can't stand it. And we want to get up and go. We want to not face it. And that raging river actually does swallow our efforts to stay focused, to stay on the path, to stay in the groove, and to uphold the practice. So this ebb and flow, this sometimes bearable trickling faucet, sometimes unbearable raging river, is the bread and butter of our practice. So in a way, it's what we signed up for. And we experience a restless, restlessness, inner resistance. Right? There is that. There is, even after years of practice, it shows up. But resistance to what? Is it to something in particular or is it just resistance for the sake of resistance? Is it about something? You know, we heard many times, and maybe you also experienced in your practice, through your practice, that wisdom and compassion are non-dual. Which means that wisdom manifests through compassionate action, kindness, generosity. This also means that the flip side of, flip side of that is the manifestation of ignorance through self-concerned actions, antipathy, stinginess. And often, you know, the, the depth of practitioner's realization is seen, measured, through the degree of selfless acts of generosity. Right? You can see it in the willingness of a practitioner to lead an open life of giving and sharing. You can see it with the level of grasping in regards to possessions, titles, other people. Giving is considered a virtue by many people. But how often, how often is it alive other than being a virtue? How often do we actually see it in action?
In other words, what kind of mind, what kind of mind are we practicing, are we giving? Is it about something or is it selfless? Is it truly selfless? With what kind of mind are we receiving? If you examine carefully, if we examine carefully, we see that the resistance to practice arises actually out of a mind that sees grasping as self-preservation. So the resistance that we experience when we look at it actually comes out of self-preservation, thinking that practice will eliminate and it does eliminate something. It does eliminate the grasping mind. And in that, there's nothing left. There's nothing I can call me. And that's huge. And we don't want that. We want a grasp. We want a sense of sense of self, essentially. A sense of not losing oneself. Grasping comes out of fear of annihilation of not existing. So, not wanting to practice and wanting to practice, that battle, that inner conflict that we, we often experience, sometimes more, sometimes less, <clears throat> in fact, or in actuality, comes out of willingness to die and will, or not willingness, non-willingness to die. Willingness to recognize, <coughs> excuse me, recognize open reality, selfless reality, and not willing to do that. Now, this is uh, Thanksgiving weekend, a time for appreciation, a time for selflessly giving, selflessly receiving. And in that, there's so much stinginess, there's so much refusal to actually openly be giving, to openly be receiving. So much judgment. And we may say rightfully so, right? Because we are facing... Actually, we don't know what we are going to be facing starting a month and a half from now or so. So we close off. We don't want to be generous. We want to be stingy because we feel that there is something to be, to protect, something to hold on to, something to defend. Which is more so, more the reason to go the other way, to be generous, to be open, to express kindness. Bodhidharma spoke of this as the triple emptiness, as is in no giver, no gift, and no receiver. And he said, the Dharma includes no being because it is free from the impurity of being. And the Dharma includes no self, because it is free from the impurity of self. Those wise enough to trust and understand this truth are bound to practice according to the Dharma. Right? In that, if we practice according to the Dharma, if we are giving according to the Dharma, there is no giver, there is no gift, and there is no receiver. If we are 
giving and receiving based on a, an idea of a self that can increase or decrease based on what is being given, what is being received, and how is the gift being received, then we become very calculating. We measure, we weigh, we quantify, we judge. We may give, we may not give. That depends. It depends on how the other person will receive. Depends on what will I get out of giving. And depends on maybe whether or not it will be reciprocated. Or hopes for it being reciprocated. So Bodhidharma kept going by saying, and since that which is real includes nothing worth begrudging, they, those who practice according to the Dharma, give their body, life, and property in charity without regret, without the vanity of giver, gift, or recipient, and without bias of attachment. And to eliminate impurity, they teach others, but without becoming attached to form. Thus, through their own practice, they're able to help others and glorify the way of enlightenment. And as with charity, they also practice the other virtues. But while practicing the virtues to eliminate delusion, they practice nothing at all. This is what is meant by practicing the Dharma. This is our zazen practice. Of course, you can say that you know in zazen there is nobody's giving anything, nobody's receiving anything, because we think there are no interactions. But all the interactions flow out of and into our zazen. Zazen is not a time for seclusion, although. Physically, we are, in a way, secluding ourselves. We are physically not interacting, form-based non-interaction. That's true. And then th there's something in us that knows. There's something that knows that this is its end, and it's a threat. And if we dive deeply into that, we lose the boundaries. We lose the game, actually. We lose the game of gaining points, gaining value, gaining worth. Being someone, that we lose. Or at least it seems as if we lose. But the deeper we go, the more we realize that we're actually not losing anything. We just stop inventing. Resistance is very powerful. Everybody experiences that. There's no way to not experience it. So there's no need to turn away from it, but there is a need to bring the resistance into the practice and then to look at it. It's probably one of the more common uh, discussions with practitioners, between practitioners and teachers. Is, is the resistance to the practice itself. And I often think about it, you know, what is it? Why are we so, why do we make an issue out of it? You know, Zazen practice can be seen and has been compared to a giant furnace that has the potential to burn whatever it is we put in it without leaving any traces. 
So if we allow it, if we allow it, it will burn all the resistance and the discursive thoughts. But we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to bring everything, including our most precious thoughts and ideas about the self, including, about, including the hopes of becoming something someday, actually including the hopes of, being, of becoming enlightened, that too has to be brought into our zazen practice and be burnt completely. So that also has no traces. And it does, it burns it all, right? It burns the sense of lack, which we often experience, the notion of separateness, the restless energy. It's the chicken and the egg, isn't it? We don't want to sit often because we feel restless, but unless we sit, restlessness grows. How do we intercept that? Of course, it's not just the sitting itself that we are talking about. Sitting is standing up. Standing up is walking. Walking is talking. Talking is taking action. It's not limited to sitting still. So when it burns it all out, when Azazen burns it all out, all that is left is just the vastness of empty potential which we are. And then in that, there is a sense of readiness to take the shape according to the need. Now, sense of readiness is not a sense of self. It's different than what is being burnt through the process. because it's not tangible. It's not thought-based. It's actually thoughtless-based. But there is a, there's a walking, talking, moving potential that is ready to be of service to others at all times unconditionally, without measuring, without quantifying the other or oneself, without calculating, without waiting. And the giving itself also burned itself out through the action. So after the giving has taken course, or its course, there's nothing left. So there's no need to wait for it to be reciprocated. Because it can't be reciprocated. It can't be replicated when there's nothing left. That's pure being, that's pure living, that's pure giving. That's what Bodhidharma meant by the triple emptiness. So we have the potential to meet every moment with a fresh attitude and then respond to it appropriately, whether it's action or non-action whether with words or silence. It's an interesting thing, you know, we, so often we feel like we have to, empty, we have to fill the void with some noise. 
so many people feel uncomfortable when moments of silence feel awkward. Feel maybe selfless. Maybe that's why. No boundaries, no borders. Who am I when I don't speak? What will others think about me? Will they think I'm stupid? Will they think I have nothing to say? Look how often and how, how much calculating we are without even knowing it. So a potential, this potential is inherent in all of us. It's, it's nothing special, it's nothing unique to one individual more than another. But the only way, there's no other way to really tap into it unless we get through, we get beyond discursive thinking. We get beyond the restless energy. And there's no other way to get beyond the restless energy unless we sit down, stop feeding it, and just observing it. Or we are at its service. Right? And, and while the potential is inherent, we get distracted and get clouded by analyzing, comparing, judging. It happens all the time. Right? The slightest hesitation, the slightest hesitation, and we become disengaged from this natural flow, from this inherent emptiness. We get distracted, we hesitate, we get trapped. And then we get lost in an imagined version of reality. In reality in which I am the main character, everybody else is judged by my thoughts, my concepts, my beliefs. I accept or reject based on what I see through my personally tinted glasses. Well, this is just how the differentiating mind dominates our words, actions. Dominates the world we live in. And then the world becomes fragmented. Gaps are born. Gaps between giver, gift, receiver. And of course, when the world is chopped up to fragments, people are categorized and valued based on conceptual structure created by cultural, societal forces. We can't avoid that. There's no way to avoid judgmental thinking. As soon as the eye rests on something, judgmental thinking arises. As soon as a sound enters the ear, judgmental thinking arises. There's no way to avoid that. There's no need to avoid that. It's just how the mind, the thinking mind works. It's how the influenced thinking mind works. Bodhidharma said to not be surprised when we feel this way, when we encounter repetitive judgmental thinking. Or when we encounter the way karma manifests in us, whether through our own pasts, personal past or generations before us. There's no way to avoid that. There's no need to avoid that. All we have to do is just throw it into the wide, empty sky. 
in the vastness of space. And let space worry about that, carry that for you. We don't have to walk around carrying the burden of this kind of world or this kind of reality on our shoulders. Maybe that's all we need to hear, that we don't have to walk around carrying the burden on our shoulders. That would be a relief, wouldn't it? So sitting, practicing gives us the option to see how we trap ourselves. Or as Plato said, to see how we become imprisoned in the body like an oyster in the shell. And also to see how we can free ourselves. There's a story about Linji. Rinzai, who goes into a ceremonial feast wearing his rugged, beat-up robes. He was invited to that feast. And he goes in, <coughs> and uh, at the gate, he wants to enter, and at the gate, this guy asked him, who are you? He looks like a beggar, right? Who are you? He said, well, I am Rinzai, and uh, I'm invited to this ceremony. He said, now, you're not invited. Look at you, you know. You don't look like somebody who would be invited to such a ceremony. So he said, okay. He walks away, comes back, dressed up with his nice robes. He walks in. He's uh, shown his seat. He walks to his seat. He takes off his robes, puts them on the seat, and walks away. On the way out, they asked him, what are you doing? He said, well, you did not invite me, you invited my robes. You're not interested in me. And it's a nice little story. I mean, of course, you know, this is Rinzai, but it's a nice little story because we do that, we respond to life in this way, either by doing it to others, or experiencing this being done to us by other people. We look at each other through tinted glasses, culturally tinted glasses. And of course that changes with time. Every culture has its own. What's considered good, what's considered not so good. Years ago in India, it was, uh, it was a custom actually to work for women to wear shirts that are cut just above the belly so they could show how big their bellies are to show that they have enough money to eat. They have big bellies, they could show that they are, they show status, or it was a status symbol. And we are imprisoned by our thoughts, concepts. So we can't be free to be giving. We can't be free to be receiving. We can't be free to not be calculating and measuring as long as we are chained by those concepts. And I think that often we are not even aware how chained we are by culture. Now, differentiation without equality creates self-inflicted suffering, as we see. And differentiation that originates in equality heals self-inflicted suffering. There's no need to not differentiate, obviously. There's no need to homogenize. 
as my teacher used to say. But there is a dire need to realize equality through differentiation. So, of course, there is someone who is giving and someone who is receiving. Of course, the, the doing, the charity, the kindness is directed at, towards a person, a group of people, at a certain time or situation, of course. And in that we have to lose ourselves. As we do in our Zazen, as we do in our Kinhin. While we are thinking of giving, we lose ourselves. While we are giving, while we are serving others, we lose the self that is, or maybe asking, why are you doing this for this person? Is he or she worth this kind of generosity? Is there somebody more worthy of your kindness at that time? And this is what we encounter. And that's not personal either. You know, those thoughts are not personal. They're just passing thoughts. That's all. Just passing thoughts. Where we don't take them seriously, we can focus on doing what we're doing, giving what we're giving. But if we take them seriously, they start to dominate, dictate the way we function in society, the way we deal with each other. In this koan, again, we encounter Zhao Zhu. In this koan, Zhao Zhu does exactly that, right? This is exactly what he's doing. While dealing with differentiation, or on purpose, he goes into differentiation to point at equality. And he's doing it in a natural and unassuming manner. He's just doing his thing. He's not being calculated. So he runs into a monk who's never been at the monastery before and he offers him a cup of tea. Then he runs into a monk who has been there with the Sangha for a while, right? Somebody who's a long-time practitioner maybe. And again, he offers a cup of tea. So while seeing and acknowledging differences, because he is asking about something that is different. And he knows. I've never seen this guy before. This guy's been here for a while. He knows that. But he raises it. Nonetheless. He raises the differences and he responds with equality. He actually offers a sip of equality to both of them in a generous way, uh, in a caring way, grandmotherly kindness as it is often referred to. And it's actually an essential part of practice, uh, essential part of realization. Uh, Dogen, there's a story of Dogen that he had a, a, somebody who was about to become a successor and apparently had deep understanding, deep realization, maybe deep Kensho experiences. And he told him, yes, I understand, I see that you have reached this level, but you have not yet achieved grandmotherly kindness. 
you still are, to a certain extent, possessive of your realization, of being different by being the one who has realized more than others. But what could be realized if not equality? What else wisdom could be? And when you realize equality, naturally you will be giving. Naturally you will not be calculating and measuring. So Zhaozhu is not ignoring differentiation, not denying. It just makes the uneven even. This is our zazen, to make the uneven even. Not only that, this is our responsibility. To be making the uneven even. In the way we interact with other people. In the way we function in this reality. While feeling at times deflated, looking at what we're looking at these days. A grim reality of feeling like we're going backwards. In that we have to be serving others, giving, loving, embracing, not chopping up. So observing this, right, the monastery director felt perplexed. So he asked Zhaozhu, aside from the one who has been here, why did you say have a cup of tea to the one who has not been here before? And the footnote there says, I'm afraid he has missed the whole thing. He was there, or at least his eyes were open, his ears were open to listen, but he wasn't seeing what was going on. He wasn't hearing what was going on. He was intoxicated by, by his mind, by his judgments. To be blind is to be blind. To not see is to not see. To not hear is to not hear. So how could he have seen being trapped like an oyster in the shell? So Zhaozhu says, Director, now this director, this is the same as have a cup of tea. This director comes from the same loving, kind, embracing heart of Zhaozhu. When somebody calls your name, calls out your name, and you say, yes, at that moment, what is missing? At that moment of acknowledging, Acknowledging each other, calling and answering, answering and calling. One doesn't come before the other, happens at the same time. At that moment of recognition, do we recognize? That is giving, receiving, and a gift. Right there. Just calling somebody by their name and having this person answer. Only if it's done from a non-differentiating mind, non-differentiating heart, then giving happens.
But the director did not quite get that either. So Zhaozhu says, have a cup of tea. And the footnote says, this is kindness that is hard to repay. Now this is what we're doing in our practice, in the way we maintain practice, our devotion to practice is in a way repaying past generations of teachers and practitioners, those who came before us, those who have left the Dharma for us to practice. The way, the way we repay or show gratitude to what they have left for us to practice is by practicing together, by sharing it with others. Whether they practice or not is irrelevant. Whether they are blind or not is also irrelevant. We repay by committing to the practice, by upholding the vows, by not taking the mind, the thoughts, the judgment so seriously, by dealing with the restlessness through and in Zazen. By paying attention, moment by moment, paying attention. <clears throat> There's a dialogue with King Yuan, where a monk asked him once, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from India? What's the meaning of this? Why do we practice? Why are we doing this? What are we trying to get through all this? What's Zen all about? King Yuan said, it's just like this. So the monk asked further, what do you have to teach these days? King Yuan said, come closer. So the monk moved closer. He didn't hit him, by the way. He said, keep this in mind. That's all he said, just keep this in mind. He says, come closer. He came closer. Keep that in mind. What a great advice. Come closer. Pay attention. Be present. Don't run away. Run towards your fears, your hopes, your expectations, your judgment thinking, judgmental thinking. Get close to that. All the emotions that we experience, that too. Instead of running away, we go towards. And when we go towards, we have a chance to examine and to see whether or not what we feel about it or what we think about it is true. So we don't take it for granted. I know why I feel this way. I know I, I, know I am not worthy of receiving attention from others, receiving love from others. I know others are not interested in my presence, in what I have to say. I know I have nothing to offer. Or I know I have the, all the answers. That too is a trap. Whatever it is, we come close to that and look and listen and eliminate the gap Also, when we come close, we can listen to the suffering of the world. And maybe respond in a more appropriate way. Not based on what we think, but based on what is needed. And it doesn't matter how deep the realization is or, our level of, or the level of understanding. And I mean, since wisdom and compassion are non-dual, a genuine compassionate response is already infused with 
essence of wisdom. So if we don't worry too much about level of understanding or depth of realization, then we are free to focus on serving others. And then in that, through serving others, we deepen our realization. Because we deepen compassion. And compassion is wisdom. So we don't have to worry so much about how many koans I went through, I've passed. These koans are too difficult, too easy, or whatever. It really doesn't matter. It does matter to not judge or not fall a victim to our own judgments. You know, Rumi said there are hundreds of ways to kneel down and kiss the ground. Kiss the ground. To appreciate, to show gratitude, to serve others. There are hundreds of ways to make the uneven even. You know, the four immeasurables go into the heart of that. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. But we need to chant maybe more often. May all sentient beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. Just that thought alone, whether we utter it or we just think it. May all sentient beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. That is giving. That is sharing. May they be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May they not be separated from the great happiness, the void of suffering. May they dwell in the great equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. May we all be able to, like, like Zhao Zhu, deal with differentiation through equality. Realize and recognize that everybody is equally deserving of a cup of tea. But that tea is made, has to be made fresh on the spot. It's not in your backpack. You won't find anything there. And if you do, it may not be the right kind of tea. Or it may be stale. Maybe contaminated by your thoughts, by your past, by your karma. So where do we find that cup of tea? Where do we find this cup of tea? This is our question. Let's all work on that. <laughs>